0: To understand John's theology, we can sum it up this way. Suffering, better yet, our willingness to suffer, flows from love and further prepares the heart to receive wisdom, and in John's case, he receives the seat of wisdom, Mary the Mother of God.
1: Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Heshmeyer, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Troy Hinkle, the co-founder of Holy Family School of Faith. As part of our theme of Lent Through the Eyes of John, uh, we're going to be talking about the Apostle John and what he has to say to all of us uh, during this Lent. Troy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Joe, for having me. I appreciate it. So what do we want listeners to take away from today's episode?
0: I think three things. First... The richness of John's theology is a result of the intimacy of his relationship with Christ, and this is reflected in his writings. Second, John's relationship with Christ transitions with his ongoing relationship with Mary, which shapes his experience of Good Friday, and it shapes his own theology and spirituality for the rest of his life. And thirdly, He teaches us what love looks like, both in his life and in his writings.
1: And we see this both before, during, and after Good Friday. Part 1. St. John the Evangelist. So the New Testament author who writes the most words is actually St. Luke, between the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And, of course, the New Testament author with the most books is St. Paul. But St. John actually has the most genres, the most different styles of writing. What do we mean by that? And what does it tell us about John and and his understanding of the faith?
0: Right. John, he writes three different kinds of books that get included in the New Testament. He writes historical, which is his gospel, an eyewitness account of what he himself sees and hears from Jesus Christ. He also writes church epistles. These are letters that are written to leaders in in various locations of the church in order to confirm them in some aspect of faith. And lastly, he writes the book of Revelation, which is called Apocalyptic, where he is given a heavenly vision, a mystical vision that he dictates while he is having this vision laid out before him when he's in a cave on the island of Patmos.
1: So he's writing both as an apostle
0: and then as a bishop. And then as a mystic. Right. I think uh, we see in the life of St. John and his relationship with the Lord, with his other apostles, and especially with the Blessed Virgin Mary, these relationships become rich deposits of theological dimension and what he has to say. He identifies himself only as the beloved disciple in his gospel, not because he's conceited, but because his relationship with Our Lady. And he recognizes this as the sign of one who's beloved. We also see that he is deeply contemplative and uh, has mystical theology that's in his gospel that is uh, very different from what we find in the synoptic gospels. We also see this theme of suffering and how it brings on wisdom that goes with his Marian devotion because he alone stands at the foot of the cross when Jesus is crucified. He alone of all the apostles.
1: Great. Well, let's take a deeper look at some aspects of that theology in the next two parts of this podcast. Part two, Saint John, son of Mary. Saint John has a special relationship with Mary. How do we see this explicitly in his gospel? And what does this result in his writing and his theology?
0: Good question. Uh, I think in his gospel, we see this most clearly in John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. We read, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home, or the original translation, took her as his own, Ais, his own. Um, and of course, this is occurring when Jesus is being crucified, and he looks down upon the two.
1: So what is that, what, what happens afterwards?
0: Well, so... What we know from history is that John does indeed take Mary into his own home, takes her as his own mother, and they live in Ephesus. Uh, I've been to the house where they lived. It's interesting how John nestled it on the other side of the hill, so that there's a hill between he and the town of Ephesus to keep her hidden, to take care of her. You can just see the care, the concern that he had for her, as it was his responsibility given to him by the Lord, this, uh, this idea of, of taking care of entrustment.
1: So it's remarkable to me, if you think about it, he's had three years of one-on-one or one-on-twelve kind of conversations with Jesus Christ in the flesh. And then as sort of an epilogue to that, he and the mother of Christ, the mother of God, uh, go and live together for however many years. And she would know more about Christ than anyone. And so they have these two different encounters with him. It must have been just an incredibly rich sharing.
0: Yeah, no doubt. You know, he's taking care of her. And think of the conversation. Uh, This conversation that would have been so Christological because he had become the center of his, John's life, but of course was the center of Mary's life because of her own investment in him as being his mother and how uh, her own spirituality is reflected in John's.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about some of the ways that we see these parallels between... Mary's spirituality and John's spirituality. Um, Can we see a connection between the way Luke describes Mary and the way that John writes and thinks?
0: Definitely. I think in Luke's gospel in chapter 2, Luke likes to mention how Mary ponders these things in her heart. First, when um, she's given the message of the angel and the angel departs. And um, uh, she then says in, in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. This phrase is then repeated later on in the same chapter, verses 41 through 43, after they had found him in the temple and returned home. Verse 51, Mary says, And he went down with him and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all of these things in her heart.
1: So the very kind of contemplative Uh, theology it's a very contemplative spirituality she's witnessing these things she's an eyewitness just as john is to other events in the life of christ and then she takes it in and ruminates on it and sort of chews it over how do we see that In John's own spirituality
0: yeah a beautiful question I think definitely we do see this John is considered the mystical writer with his gospel his image the symbol is the eagle because of the perspective that he has that's soaring and and is so rich and how free it is and his ability to to see things and to soar to God in the ways that the synoptic Gospels do not So this mystical contemplative dimension really sets John apart
1: seems like another theme that they have in common then is also this, more explicitly, the theme of Marian entrustment. You know, as you mentioned, in John 19, he's entrusted Mary, not just as a caretaker, but he's introduced into a mother-son
0: sort of relationship. Right. As uh, as we know that Jesus did not have physical brothers, uh, which he would have given his mother to them had he have had physical brothers. He's giving her to John. Uh, in precisely this role so that John takes care of her. But if he's taking care of her as a mother, she is his mother and she is taking care of him. I think this is the common theme in today's Marian theology. So many books that are out there, whether it's the writings of De Montfort or of 33 Days to Morning Glory by Father Gately. This whole idea of, of giving ourselves and trusting ourselves to Mary the way Jesus did, the way John did.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful encounter. So one of the things Frank Sheed mentions, I mentioned this in a previous podcast episode, I think, is that John's biological mother is there at the cross. Like John doesn't need another physical mother, but is given Mary as a mother spiritually. So how does he sort of invite us into that relationship um, in his own writing?
0: Well, in his uh, book of Revelation in chapter 12, This is very interesting because as he's witnessing the revelation of the Ark of the New Covenant, which is how chapter 11 ends, and he experiences all of this earth-shattering, fire-from-heaven experience that is accompanying this immense and enormous revelation, he then sees in verse 1 of chapter 12 a great portent that appears in heaven. And he writes, A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And of course, this woman is the mother of the Savior, so we know that it is Mary. So he identifies her first as this Ark of the New Covenant that is the caretaker of the true people of God. And then he makes this clear in verse 17 of the same chapter, Revelations chapter 12. Verse 17, Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. In other words, Christians. The Christians are her offspring. She is our mother. It's a beautiful way of having all
1: of us kind of invited into that notion of Mary's mother. Right. Um, one of the things we pointed out in the last one, just to kind of tie it in here now, is that this is tied to Mary as the new Eve. That at the, at the tree in Genesis 3, Adam changes Eve's name from woman to Eve, which means mother. And it means specifically mother of the living. Right. And so... The same thing happens in John 19, where he says, "'Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother.'" And John's saying, "She's not just my mother; she's the mother of all those living in Christ. Right. Those who keep the testimony of God and bear witness to Jesus.
0: Right. Right. So I think I think this is another idea, a theme in John that's similar to the themes we see in the in the synoptic Gospels, and certainly would have been something that was near and dear to Mary's. This theme of the incarnation, because God has become man. There are a lot of the church fathers said man could become God in Christ or like God in Christ. So this theme of the incarnation ties in Mary's divine motherhood but also her motherhood of the living then those alive in Christ because now that he's become man we share in his divinity and his humanity and, um, and so this theme of the Incarnation factors prominently in his gospel, not only because he shares it with Our Lady, she's the one who gives up her humanity to the Lord, but because he's responding to a terrible heresy that was plaguing the church at this time called Gnosticism that was denying the Incarnation and therefore would be denying the role that Mary had in the life of the Christian.
1: It does seem like it would be a particularly personal blow, uh, not only as an apostle, someone who knew him in the flesh, but when you're living with his mother and she's now your mother, to be told, no, oh, she didn't really give birth to Jesus Christ. Exactly.
0: And, of course, the love, if, if, we're, if we're going to become like Jesus, we're going to love what Jesus loves the way he loves that object of love in this case his mother if we're going to love his mother like jesus we're only allowing jesus's love for his mother to penetrate through us so the tremendous love john would have had at any believer who does have who allows mary into their hearts the way he did we're going to be very solicitous to not only protect her her beautiful maternity her divine maternity but the fact of the incarnation for saint john points out to us that those who deny that Christ has come in the flesh are of the Antichrist.
1: It seems like all of this is sort of brought to a head with the whole controversy over Theotokos, the notion of whether Mary is the mother of Christ or whether she's truly the mother of God.
0: Right. This was uh, at Ephesus, a council that took place in the 5th century, I think 4th 31 or so, um, against a a bishop named Nestorius who was teaching that Mary could not be the mother of God. So to condemn him and to preserve the integrity of Christ, the church proclaims the dogma of Mary as Theotokos, God-bearer, mother of God, that she is the mother of God because Jesus is God. He's true God and true man, and there's a perfect unity in his reality as Jesus Christ, And at that council, it's interesting that that council took place in the very spot where St. John and Mary lived and where Mary was entrusted to John and where uh, he took care of her. Uh, So naturally, it would be the right place to take care of her doctrinally.
1: I love the fact that in 431, we see them coming to this place, as you just said. And so much of John's own theology is used to disprove Nestorianism, to prove the reality that Jesus Christ is the
0: incarnate God-man, a single person with Mary truly as his mother. Right. I think this is another reason why the church fathers say he who wants... Uh, Jesus uh, as brother and God as father cannot do so without Mary as mother. Um, It makes no sense to say, well, if Jesus is my brother, that makes you my brother, and that makes God my father. Oh, but Mary's not my mother. (laughs) Well, then what kind of divine family are we talking about here? Of course she's our mother. She's mother uh, uh, on the uh, order of grace. She's she's the mother of God. And as we've given ourselves to God, she becomes our mother. Part three, St. John, Apostle of Love. So we just
1: talked about some of the Marian dimensions to John's writing. But one of the Mm. real themes that seems to emerge is that John is an apostle of love. What do we mean by that?
0: Right. This is a title that spiritual writers have given him because this theme of love appears so much in his life and in his writings and in his teaching. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, quotes I have from one of his letters, he says, Love resides not in our showing any love for God, but in his showing love for us, from 1 John 4.10. Um, this is another theme of John, is that God is love, and God initiates this love, pouring it into our hearts. And when we receive, now we follow suit, and this is his way of showing Whether or not we're a disciple is whether or not we love God and love our neighbor.
1: Now, I understand that uh, St. Jerome relates a story from John's life not found in John's own writings. That tells us a little more about what this kind of message looked like in person.
0: Right, right. Uh, St. Jerome had a commentary on uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 6. Verse 10, where St. Paul says, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. And then in commentary on that, St. Jerome uh, mentions the story of St. John the Apostle, who when he would stand up to preach, particularly with his gathering of, of followers who lived in Ephesus, he would give some of the shortest homilies ever. He would stagger up to the podium and he would simply say, little children, love one another. And then he'd go and sit back down.
1: And so I understand that the people listening eventually got annoyed at hearing the same homily day after day, week after week. And as, as you pointed out before the episode, like that's just not a complaint people have these days. That's right. That the homily is too short.
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't hear that too often. Yeah, they asked him, why does he always do this? And he said, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. And so for him love is not just, I know I'm reminiscing back to my 70s, it's more than a feeling. It's not just a feeling. It is more than a feeling. It's something more than just an emotional um, uh, experience. It's something that involves truly sacrificing for the good of the other. And if you truly sacrifice for the good of the other, it implies you know what that good is, and it, it implies you're willing to make the right priorities on what you should sacrifice for. Uh, for what? You want to sacrifice small things for greater things. And so his whole uh, uh, corpus of writings is making it clear because our Lord himself showed us that message while he hung on the cross. And of course, John stood at the foot of that cross and witnessed the fullness and the culmination of Jesus's life and message when he stood there with our lady.
1: Yeah, I think it's a remarkably unsentimental view of love that for someone who writes as much as he does about love, this isn't the candy heart kind of vision. Like right. you said, it's a vision of love that involves suffering. Right. And he also is very clear about tying love and truth to one another. Right. That we don't sacrifice the truth for the sake of so called
0: love. Right, right. Yeah, and I think this is an important part. He, he ties in, for, particularly in his first letter, he ties in the themes of obedience and truth and love and truth. I want to share a couple of verses uh, that I have highlighted in my scripture that I was reading just today, where he says in uh, 1 John, his first letter in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, And by this we may be sure that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. Um, I think this is a component of love we don't think about these days. We think of obedience as being either the opposite of love or somehow lesser than love. That, that uh, when, you, when you love, you don't, you know, where does obedience fit in? And for John, obedience is, is truly sacrificing the lesser for the greater. In this case, our own self-will, something he writes about uh, in chapter 4 of his first letter, uh, for the greater will of God, because God's will is always perfect. This whole sacrificing, this self-abnegation, this denying of oneself, of self will, is essential to his concept of love. And of course, he's drawing this from the master, Jesus.
1: Absolutely. A line I heard recently that uh, really resonated with me is that sacrifice is the language of love. Right. That right. If you love, you give things up for those that you love. You, you do things for them. You sacrifice time, talent, treasure. You maybe physically suffer for them. You know, childbirth is a great example. Right, right. That a mother does this for the child that she loves. It's not just something you do for a stranger. It's <laughs> out of this union of love that you're willing to uh, suffer in that way.
0: Well, it's so contradictory and foreign, I think, to our own cultural understanding because we, we see um, our own individuality and our own autonomy and our own self-expression and our own creation of our own destiny, our own self-expression toward our own destiny as the essence of, of what it means to be human, of what it means to be American. And this kind of understanding certainly uh, runs counter to the, the, the understanding of love we're getting from Jesus in the New Testament, and particularly St. John, where it's just the opposite of that. These are the things you lay down. As Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat dies, it will not produce fruit. It will not produce life. This is the paradox of the gospel, this is the, the essence of John's understanding of love. I agree, it's, a, it's, a, it's very contradictory to what we hear today.
1: So it seems that we see this sort of sacrificial love in John's life and in his writings before, during, and after Good Friday. Right,
0: right. John records four chapters of the Last Supper more than the synoptic authors. And in chapter 13 of his gospel verses 21 through 25, we read this, When Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying close to the breast of Jesus. So here in this passage, John is relaying the fact that he is entering into the very pierced wound, the, the chest that will be pierced soon, of Jesus. And this is how he is receiving this message of sacrificial love.
1: Beautifully put. And it seems like the message that he's receiving while just resting on him is, is one of abiding and one of love.
0: Right. Right. John fifteen four. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Yeah, beautiful concept of abiding, this shared life.
1: So it's striking that there's, you know, the beauty of him laying on the chest of Jesus. There's a beauty of this message about abiding. But carried within that is something intimately connected with suffering. I mean, remember the context of learning that that John is resting on the, the chest of Jesus is Jesus is sharing with them that one of those that he loves is about to betray them. Right. that he's opened up his heart to this band of brothers and one of them is going to sell him for 40 pieces of silver right and so that I guess leads us pretty naturally then to Good Friday
0: right right yeah because from there they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested and taken from them and and, it, and they don't see him again until he is uh, being presented before them as a criminal by now, The rest of the apostles have abandoned him, but John is the only one, along with Jesus' mother and some of the other women, Mary Magdalene and Salome and some of the others, who do not abandon him and who stand at the foot of the cross and watch.
1: What do they have in common? Like, why do those ones make it while the other ones don't?
0: Yeah, I think it's their, it's, it's love love is the the power to uh, accept suffering and i like what you said earlier that quote from saint maximilian colby and suffering is the fruit or food of love i don't think we can embrace the cross without it and it's not to say that peter and the rest didn't love uh, they did but their love still had not uh, been purified it is suffering that purifies our love john's the youngest of the gospels and i think the youth uh, enables him to uh, not be as tied to the things of the world. The older we get, we start we start growing attached to things. We don't want to let go of them, and it makes this kind of love more difficult.
1: What's striking about this is comparing John and Peter. We covered Peter in a previous episode. But Peter, he's hearing the same things at the Last Supper. But he just says, basically, don't worry about it, God. Got it under control. Right. I'm not going to deny you. And, of course, we know how the story ends. He does. Right. But then when he's kind of reconciled, as it were... In John twenty one, Jesus' way of like healing him is to say, Do you love me? Right. To show him that your own strength isn't enough. Right. But rely on this faith, rely on this love.
0: Yeah, and I think the age difference between the two, you know, for men, there's kind of a rite of passage, right? You don't become a man just by growing past age eighteen or seventeen or whatever age. There seems to be this sense that you have to be willing to embrace sacrifice. Some kind of toughness is required of you. And then when you pass through that right, you think, okay, I've, I've, I've achieved it. And here, of course, is your point. Jesus is saying this kind of achievement is not possible. If you're going to achieve manhood in my kingdom, it demands childlike trust and the willingness to lay down your life for me. And John, who's the younger of the two, who has this contemplative aura about him, this contemplative theology that's in his writings, because of his, his intimacy with Jesus, as we saw back in chapter 13, he's the one who's ready. He's the one who embraces the cross with Mary, with Mary Magdalene, Salome, and, and the other Mary.
1: You know, there's a beautiful story, if we're going to look past Good Friday, um, showing how John really took this to heart and then shared it with other young men, including a young man that he adopted. I think we see this lived out, this notion of a self-sacrificing love.
0: Right. St. Clement of Alexandria had uh, written a commentary and a story called, Who is the Rich Man That Shall Be Saved? around 190 AD. He's the one who relays this story of St. John after he had been made bishop in Ephesus exiled to Patmos, which is just off the coast of, of Ephesus. I've been to both places. He's on Patmos, and then he returns. But before his exile, he had adopted a young man in the, in the town of Ephesus and entrusted this young man to one of the elders, one of the bishops there. And then he leaves. He returns years later, and he approaches that same bishop, and he says, what has happened to this treasure I left you? Meaning the life of this young man. Because by now, John is heard this young man has become kind of a wild man. He is, he's one of the bad seeds who's gone astray and he's become a ruffian.
1: yeah so what does he do in response to this? I mean, what does he do when he learns from the bishop what's happened?
0: so he, he goes out into the wilderness where he hears of this young man um, who, who by now he's got a uh, kind of a gang of cutthroats and they're they're thieves and they rob passersby who go through this valley and John, chases down this young man, who's now not such a young man, and hollers out after him. And uh, he tells uh, him, My son, why do you flee from me, your father, unarmed, old? He's hollering at him as he's running after this ruffian who, once he hears the voice of St. John, recognizes it, and being the, uh, the warlord that he is, drops his weapons and runs. And then John chases after him, hollering.
1: Oh, yeah. Clement records that he wept bitterly, which is great. It's also the language of Peter. In both cases, you have these men who who think that they're tough, who take up arms, and then they have to have this moment of real encounter and real weakness. And then John, an old man, approaches him. And then what
0: happens? Yeah, right. So, So John approaches him. He embraces him. Now, this is the the leader of a band of cutthroats. His men are with him. They look up to him. He's the one who makes the, the violent decisions that the group obeys. They see him having dropped his weapons, having faced John, and now he's weeping, and he allows himself to be embraced by the man he recognizes as his father in the spirit and uh saint clement says that he was now baptized a second time with tears and um he conceals his right hand which was the hand he used to perform his crimes he doesn't want john to see it and john pulls out the right hand c- uh, kisses the 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 thumb and, and uh thumb and finger of the hand and um to show the man that he he's He's, even in his sinfulness, he's being embraced back into the fold. And the man sheds more tears, and, and John says of him, your repentance has won you this day, has, re- has restored you, and, uh, and, and, and through prayer. So what a beautiful story in this act of love, that it's love that conquers a young man who's uh, first brought into the covenant of love with John, handed over to one of the elders of the church, and then went uh, uh, off the tracks and became violent.
1: Yeah, two things really jumped out to me beyond what you'd mentioned. Um, because when we're talking about the kind of love that he has, one of the things is that one of the criticisms was that the bishop to whom John had entrusted the young man had been too soft. It said that the bishop had relaxed his stricter care and guardianship under the idea that the seal of the Lord, he had set on him with a complete protection to him. But that because of this premature freedom, some use of his age, idle, dissolute, and adept in evil courses corrupted him. Right. So it's like, it, it's that sentimental view of, oh, you're a believer. You're, you know, you love God. So don't worry about any sort of like strictness or penance or any of these things.
0: Right, right. This is one of the things that frustrated me when I worked in uh, parishes in different dioceses than the one we're in currently. The, the vision seemed to be, let's just give them, our people, the sacraments. And this bishop seemed to think that was sufficient. He's been sealed by the sacrament of baptism. What else does he need? Hence, he was not given strong instruction, discipline, or expectation of obedience in the call to prayer. Hence, when the man encountered a hostile culture, similar to the culture we encounter, he had no tools, no means, no roots to withstand the temptations that that culture produced, and he was corrupted. This is what frustrated me when I was in parish life. I thought, no, we, we need to give the sacraments, but we need to prepare for re- reception and response to the grace of those sacraments, which includes formation, uh, uh, prayer, and, and ongoing repentance and discipline.
1: Yeah, it's striking the way that penance and discipline aren't opposed to love, but are closely tied together because of the thing we Seems like we keep coming back to like sacrifices, the food of love. Right. I love the way Clement uh, kind of concludes this reflection, where he says, "For he who in this world welcomes the angel of penitence will not repent at the time that he leaves the body, nor be ashamed when he sees the Savior approaching in his glory and with his army. He fears not the fire." What a beautiful kind of takeaway from this encounter between john and this young man
0: right it reminds me of another uh, passage in first uh, john and in, first in john chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 saint john says do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world <clears throat> excuse me love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh And the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Again, this concept of abiding again, as he juxtaposes a love for the world, a love for the pleasures, that which is fleeting, and instead of loving God and being willing to sacrifice those things for this greater love.
1: So it seems like an easy thing for people to maybe take away as we approach Easter, as we go through these last moments in Lent, is to really examine their conscience and say, who do I love, the world or Christ? For whom am I willing to give up time? For whom am I willing to really invest, sacrifice?
0: Absolutely. I think um, we perhaps fall into this God as grandpa image, that um, the default switch is set on salvation, and we have to really, really mess up in order to go to hell. When in fact, what our Lord says is the, the, the path is easy that leads to hell, it's difficult to heaven, because he calls us to this kind of love, which is demanding, requires penance, sacrifice, Prayer and sacramental life, along with truth. But it's a
1: beautiful understanding of why why we do all of these things, why we're doing Lenten sacrifices. Right. It's not earning our way to heaven. It's just living out that kind of love. Right. As he said, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Right. So, Troy, what have we covered today, talking about Lent through the eyes of John?
0: Well, I think first we've covered that St. John the Evangelist is called the Evangelist precisely because... He's such a varied writer.
1: Yeah, you know, like Paul writes epistles, Luke writes histories, and John, it just seems like he writes everything.
0: Right. He's, he's got gospels, he's got historical, he's got epistle, and he's got apocalyptic.
1: It seems like this reflects a very rich life of experiencing theological content, ruminating on it, and ruminating, as we're about to talk about, in the presence of Mary, and then sharing it with others.
0: Right, and I think these are the other things we mentioned. His theology is deeply spiritual and relational, which is why he's called the Apostle of Love. And with regard to his relationship to the Blessed Mother, this Marian di- uh, dimension, it really magnifies this relational and this contemplative uh, aspect of his theology.
1: Great, well, thanks for coming on the show. Let's close in a prayer. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
0: As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world
1: without end. Amen. St. John the Beloved. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.